One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Julian Cope, as you know, who is a great hero of mine. Yeah. I think a very inspiring figure in terms of the different ways he's gone in his career and the brilliant things that he's done and the crazy stuff that he's done as well. It was a big life moment for me. You will have seen anyone who follows me on Twitter will have seen my silly beaming face. <laughs> being so happy at being next to Julian Cope and uh, his wife Dorian, ever so nice ever so enthusiastic and we had a conversation about enthusiasm and Cope said a really brilliant thing that I want to pass on in the knowledge that this will be listened to by people he said the thing is everyone's going on at the moment about how what a terrible state the world's in what a tight spot the world is in at the moment and that's true we are in a tight spot but at the same time if you're an enthusiast and we Andy are enthusiasts. I thought, oh my God. We, you and I, Julian, yes, we, we are enthusiasts. He said, if you're an enthusiast about music or books or film or whatever you care passionately about, you have ways of getting that out to people that we didn't have 10 years ago. And people want that. So we have to embrace this moment. This is a great moment because what people need and what we all need is passion for the things that we believe in the positive things that we believe in and that we can get out there that we were never able to get out there in the way that that we could do in the old days so we should seize this moment right i thought wow this is so <laughs> this is so genuinely inspiring so it's brought me back here to talk about old books a lot of new <laughs> ideological I've... fervor and enthusiasm, which is great, of which there will be so much today. My Masses. goodness, I can yeah. feel it. I can feel the, My the, goodness, the, the yes. coiled up kind of uh, We've got Our guest has remained utterly silent throughout this, <laughs> this chat. I remember talking to Julian <laughs> Cope about Tamworth. He thinks Tamworth, because he was from Tamworth. I interviewed him on The Verb, and we just said, I said, don't you think Tamworth's a kind of... Isn't it a sort of vortex of the strange? He said, yes, it is. <laughs> and we talked forever about Tamworth, and he said, I'm sorry I've got to go. He said, I'd love to stay in gas. Nobody's ever said that to me before. <laughs> I'd love to stay in gas. I said, let's gas. <laughs> With which, shall we start? I feel it, I feel it, feel it incumbent on somebody to, to take it by the scruff of the neck and say, hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that brings new life to old books. A rather special episode of the show today, as thanks to our sponsor Unbound, the website that brings authors and readers together to create something special, we've managed to fly all the way to Mexico, where you find us in a rundown cantina, surrounded by three-legged pariah dogs and fending <laughs> off the insufferable heat with round after round of mezcal. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller, author of, on this occasion, the appropriately named The Year of Reading Dangerously, because there are few books more dangerous to either read or write <laughs> than our book today, Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano. And joining us on this trip is poet, presenter, and after a certain painter, Yorkshire's greatest living artist... <laughs> Ian McMillan. Hello, Ian. Hello. Thank you so much for asking me to talk about Under the Volcano. One of those great books that you talk about and people go, Under the what? Yeah. Malcolm who? And it's just so great to be in a room with four people who've heard of him and have read past the first chapter and have seen the film and didn't like it. Uh, and it's just so... <laughs> so I'll talk about that later. The film, yes. the film. So, John, well, before we get on to the main event... Well, what have you been reading on your holidays? Well, I, well, the best book I read on my holidays, other than Under the Volcano, which I, I reread in Spain, which wasn't a bad place. Southern Spain stands in pretty well for Mexico. I read a wonderful book called The Factory of Light, 
by Michael Jacobs in 2003. Michael Jacobs is a, a very, very interesting man. Died in 2014, um, quite young. He was only 62, I think, when he died. Um, one of the foremost kind of scholars of, of and, and, and travel writers to deal with Spain, particularly southern Spain, but also he's written books about the Andes, about travelling the Colombia. He was once kidnapped by the by the FARC and managed to charm his way out of that. I think he's a really interesting, again, a sort of underrated writer because he, he, he doesn't do the obvious thing. He doesn't... He did... It, the book is about moving to Spain and uh, becoming part of a community, Frailes in, uh, in, in Andalusia. Um, but he does it without any of the cliches. He doesn't find an old farmhouse. He doesn't find an old woman next door. He doesn't do it up, and he doesn't, you know, f- try and fail to farm. He, it, he's much more knowledgeable, and he resists all the cliches. But it is still a kind of weird and wonderful story about finding this village by chance, uh, and it uh, being led there because he was interested in the sort of mystical. There was a mystical s- sort of tradition of local saints that he became interested in, was researching. But they were so overwhelmed by the kind of the... It's a, not a particularly attractive-looking village. It's one of those villages where you wouldn't notice if you drove through it. But he became fascinated by the community there. And uh, there is an amazing kind of pre-apic, uh, very, very uh, kind of compelling character called El Sereno, the Serene, who is sort of an elderly... Uh, he has the world's smallest oil press in his... In his which he makes the, the most incredible olive oil, which apparently has massive aphrodisiac properties and can, can cure all diseases. I mean, Jacobs, they become kind of friends. Yeah. And, and the, their friendship and how that develops is, is beautifully done. And he's kind of resistant. He's, he's, you know, he's a scholar. He was an extraordinary man, Jacobs. He was Anthony Blunt's star pupil. And when Blunt was uncovered as an art historian you know, and as a spy... He remained uh, loyal to him, so he kind of did his, did in his chances as, as a sort of academic scholar. But in a way, the world benefits from the fact that he's such a good writer and his knowledge of Spain and culture. He was also, and that's one of the reasons I thought it would be appropriate. He was a, you know, Jacobs was well known as as a massive man of of food, drink, would party all hours and be the first person up in the morning, always wanting to explore. But kind of real life force. He's a great friend of the the Hay Festival, particularly the ones in in uh, Latin America. So if you're interested in a kind of a different... that The experience, of, you know, we're all kind of fascinated by going in exile, by going and living in another culture and becoming part of another culture and how you do that without being inauthentic and how you do that without just feeling like another bloody tourist. There was a very good piece on this by Suzanne Moore this week in The Guardian, you know, you are the problem. Then I think Factory of Light... The brilliant thing that he does is he finds an old cinema and he manages to, with with the help of the villagers, oh, they they reinvent the of life is. they reinvent this cinema right. and they get the most important yeah. film star of the nineteen of the nineteen forties in Spain to come and visit and open the cinema. It's a fabulous. The final scene of the book is one of the, it's and it's wonderfully written and and full of if you're interested in in Spanish history and Spanish. Spanish culture, it's uh, it's as good a place to start as any, in, published by John Murray in 2003, and I'm sad to say out of out print. Of print. Uh, this being backlisted, I am, of course, obliged to say that uh, Michael Jacobs must have, if he was a pupil of Anthony Blunt, he must have been a contemporary of Anita Bruckner. Anita Bruckner. <laughs> who was also... At one stage, uh, a people of Blunt's. And, and, now we'll, we, by Blunt. and now we'll never know what they... Maybe they knew each other. Maybe they talked to one another. Indeed. That sounds very, very he, good. He was Jacobs, when he was growing up, apparently a very serious kind of academic household. His, his father insisted that he only spoke Latin. <laughs> <laughs> so his widow, Jackie Ray, I think, still lives in the house. In his sort of late 30s, early 40s, he suddenly discovered this whole... Spain unlocked... You know, staying up late, drinking late mm. into the night, and he became. I mean, I think his he, uh, his travel book, his his literary travel book to Andalusia, published by the excellent Palace Athene, is the best single volume guide to Andalusia I think out there. If anybody's that, that is still just clinging by its fingernails and to being in print, but uh, uh, Factory of Light, really, really superior travel book. I'm just pleased that uh, given that we're doing Under the Volcano in Mexico, there must be some similarity between Mexican and Spanish pronunciation, which you're going to be far better than I am at <laughs> pulling off. <laughs> um, we shall see, Andy. <laughs> and you, uh, well, Andy, what I've, have okay, you so been I've been reading? reading several things. There's a book called The Lucky Ones by Julian Pacheco, which I'm going to talk about on the next episode. Good. But because we have Ian with us today, I want to talk about uh, a different book that I read 
over the last six weeks or so. I booked a day at the British Library, regular listeners to Backlisted may recall, after I read some of the poetry published by Blood Axe of Rosemary Tonks, which blew me away. I read a couple of the poems out here uh, on Backlisted and we got an amazing response from listeners, which is fantastic. Um, And rightly so. I mean, wonderful. Yeah. And uh, so I went, I booked a day at the British Library to read one of her novels because she wrote half a dozen novels. They're all out of print. They go for big sums of money secondhand. And um, I read one called uh, The Bloater, which I mentioned last time. The Bloater is a novel set in and around the BBC Radiophonic Workshop where uh, Rosemary Tonks collaborated with the composer Delia Derbyshire during the the mid-60s on a a setting of Orestes. And you can, in fact, go to the British Library also and listen to that setting. It's not commercially available, but the half-hour piece of work of Rosemary Tonks reading this version of Orestes over Delia Derbyshire's electronic compositions is available there at the British Library to listen to. Anyway, so I read this novel called The Bloater, and it's fascinating. It really reminded me of something by Bridget Brophy, Brophy who we did on Backlisted about six months ago. So it's very 60s, it's very of its time. I'm not sure it quite comes off, and yet it's full of fantastic little passages of writing. Mm. And I'll just read a very short one here. This is a paragraph from about halfway through the book with the protagonist, who I think we can assume is, a, is Rosemary Tonks by any other name. And she's just got a new boyfriend who she's trying not to fall head over heels in love with. And she says, I need new clothes, something in PVC with a visor. I want to change the shape of my face. It should be absolutely round. Yes, I need a circular chin and a rosebud mouth to cope with Billy and ten hours sleep every night and a complete don't-care kit of cigarettes, records, hairdressing appointments, films and so on. Once I've decided on that, I realise it isn't enough. Even if I cram every hour of the day with phony pleasures, I can't get rid of the smell of Billy's face or of the authority and care of his arms when they grip me. 2,000 cucumber sandwiches, a Ferrari, a summer, raspberry jelly, ping pong, a naked picnic in long grass might possibly take my mind off him. One has to admit he knows how to woo. Oh God, why doesn't he make a few mistakes? He's bound to sooner or later... You bet he's got some dancing routine hidden away, some David in front of the arc caper that will really let him down, and I shall pounce on it without mercy. At all costs, I must go on being spoilt and petted. I need presents. Is that just... Fantastic writer, isn't it? It's It's like a poem. It is. Well, the list, because I remember, was it Rosemary Tonks that Brian Patton did a programme about on Radio 4 when he was rediscovering people? And there's a, there's a definite link there, I think, in the list. The listic quality of that is like some of Brian Patton's stuff, some of Adrian Henry's work. Yeah. You, can tell, you, you could probably tell in a time capsule when that was written. There's, and what I liked about it was just the way it did leap out at you and it did feel like it was written for the voice, didn't it? It felt like that. Tonk says or said that she... Is that, we won't go again into what happened to her but mm. when she was writing and when she was speaking about her work her her what she was trying to do was be specific to the era but also try to say well people have been reading Verlaine and mm. Rambo and Baudelaire for over a hundred years and have learnt none of the lessons <laughs> of those poets yeah. of the derangement of the senses in the urban environment so what you have are these is these incredible as you say Specific lists, mm, yes. PVC visors. Who would yes. want a PVC visor other than in 1965? Mm. And yet these incredible flashing chains of images, to use the, the lane it's, it's phrase. In, it's interesting you say that, that you feel that novel's a bit dated, because the poetry, yeah. reading the poetry after your you know, fulsome recommendation, I, didn't, I found it incredibly uh, precise and, and contemporary. Mm. I mean, there were bits, I guess, but it's interesting whether prose is... I mean, the, the idea that prose dates quicker than poetry, I don't I know. I wonder. 
Ian, had you were you familiar with her poetry from? She I mean, I have no sense of how well known she yeah. was in like the seventies or nineteen eighties. In the seventies, she was one of those names that you'd see in a magazine, yeah. And you think, oh, there's a, there's a road, there's Rosemary Tunks. But there were so many names, so many writers around at the time, that when she disappeared from the scene, it made no ripple no. in a way because you right. thought, well, there's not a Rosemary Tunks poem in that magazine mm. or in that magazine. And I had totally and utterly forgotten about her until Brian Patton and then Blood Axe mm. revived her. And it just makes you think as you talk about on this podcast a lot, of those massive queues of writers yeah. that are yet to be rediscovered, that have disappeared, that have gone, that had their names in the magazines and names in pamphlets and small books. And where are they? And they were good, that's the thing. They haven't disappeared because they yeah. were rubbish. That's the yeah. thing. Some do disappear because they're not very good, but a lot of them hang on, and she, she deserves to be revived in a huge way, I reckon. Well, I hope somebody yeah. will... Uh, I mean, I, there may well be issues with the estate and there may be well mm. be issues with copyright and things but those books totally deserve to be available in print and and uh, available for people to read easily you know the book chat will continue on the other side of this message ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now we're back in the room. Malcolm Lowry. Andy, should, do you want to start the interrogation? <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, there's so much, so much to say. So, everybody. Ian, you said that you would come in today and make total and perfect sense of Under the Volcano <laughs> for us and for all our listeners. <laughs> uh, did you? Oh, no, wait, you didn't say that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> So, Under the Volcano, how many times have you read Under the Volcano? I probably read it once a year since 1977 because I first came across it when I was a student at North Staffordshire Polytechnic. Mm. In fact, I brought along my oh, actual North Staffordshire Polytechnic copy. Because what happened was, my mate Dave Thorpe from Newark, he'd lived with his mum and dad, worked in a factory, did his A-levels late, went to college, and he'd never done anything. He, 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 he's kind of proud of that, never done a thing. And he went out and he bought, in this bookshop in Stafford, some books that included Under the Volcano. And I went to his house on Newport Road and he was sitting there and he went, have this, it's rubbish. <laughs> he passed it to me, have this, he said, have that, it's rubbish. And he passed it to me. And the first thing you see was the cover, that amazing cover. Incredible. The fellow with the trilby hat, glugging. And you think, gosh, that's the thing. Meanwhile, in the background, I've got to say that we were doing this degree called Modern Studies. And I thought <laughs> Modern Studies, because this is 1974, I thought Modern Studies meant we'd be looking at Rosemary Tonks, we'd be looking at living writers. And on the first lecture, Dr Daniel Lamont stood up and said, you do know there's a difference <laughs> between modern and contemporary. <gasps> oh, God, there is. <laughs> so it's not Rosemary Tonks. So I think we'll start with uh, Herman Melville. So yeah. I like Herman Melville, but he wasn't yeah. contemporary. So yeah. I bought, I got this book. I got it from Dave Thorpe. I sat there. As you can see, this is the copy that was lost for years. It says here, from Mac, May 1978, because I lent it to a girl from Bolton. And then <laughs> and she left. We both left. I had another copy, but we both left. And then 10 years later, she came along to a writing workshop I did yeah. in 1988. And went, here, here's your book back. <laughs> I thought, goodness me. So because, and it's full of strange tequila-induced things. So here, on the inside cover, it, it says, 21212, 
P-E-P-E-P. You see, but so... Is that your handwriting? It is my handwriting. And underneath it, there's 213213. Very strange. And do you have any idea what those things mean? I think, embarrassingly, they might refer to handbell ringing. <gasps> because at the time I was a handbell ringer Brilliant. and I was also a church bell ringer. And as you know, with church yeah, yeah, bells, yeah. with three bells, you can't ring very much. You can only ring one, two, three, two, one, three, three, two, one, three, one, two. So this is me trying to devise a Malcolm Lowry-esque <laughs> piece. So I just got hold of the book and it was one of those books where I, at the time I've been reading, I've been trying to read a lot of modernism. I was defiant with this course. I thought, well, I'm going to read much. So I read things like, I read Ulysses and I read... Forgotten writers like Tom Malin. Remember Tom Malin? Mm. His son is Rupert Malin, who was a mm. poet, and yeah. he was writing big slabs of modernist prose, and I was reading that kind of thing. And then I started reading this, and at the same time, stupidly, I think, as well as reading about it, I read, I read the book, but I read about Lowry. Yeah. So I became involved in the biography of Lowry at the same time, just the way that this was his... I think he'd had several goes at writing this book and, of course, he left it on the train and he set fire to it mm-hmm. and he did all that. And so, it be, as a young man from a small town in another small town, this became the ur text You thought, gosh, this is what writers do. This yeah. is how writers live. Yeah, this is what yeah. writers are. And also, the prose was just astonishing. That opening bit. Two mountain chains traverse the Republic roughly from north to south, forming between them a number of valleys and plateau. Overlooking one of the valleys, which is dominated by two volcanoes, lies 6,000 feet above sea level, the town of... And, of course, I couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> I call it... I, in my head, I call it... I, I didn't say the word. I, I, went, was waiting, I was waiting for you to get there, Ian. Everybody was. but I, and So these days, I call it... I call it I, I still, because I don't like to say it, because if I say it... It, makes yeah. it, it changes it. Yeah, yeah, so at the time, I would go... I just do it. It was like a little, like a door closing. It was because yeah. it is such a gorgeous set of, va- I mean, consonants, lots of consonants to get all all together. And later on in the book, he talks about Oaxaca, yeah, yeah. which is the other place, and he talks about it sounding like a muffled bell. He said the towns of Oaxaca sounds like a muffled bell, which I thought was the same in a sense. Look, I thought it was exactly <laughs> the same. So I started reading the book, and of course, Jeffrey Furman, the book. It's not about very much, to be honest. It's about the last 12 hours in the life of the mm-hmm. alcoholic ex-British consuling, <laughs> Jeffrey Furman. <laughs> and, and at the start of the book, he, they find him in this little El Farolito, the little yeah. lighthouse. Yeah. And he's, he's reading from the post office book and he goes, a corpse will be transported by express. <laughs> and there's a tiny woman who looks a bit like Mrs. Miss Cranky yeah. in, in the corner yeah. of the thing. That's right. Playing, playing, fan-tabby playing boozy. Dumb, Domino's with a chicken. She is. And you think... <laughs> I said, John, fan-tabby boozy. <laughs> very good, very good. Oh, sorry. But at the time... Very good, Andy. But imagine yeah. reading this as a young man and going, yeah. goodness me, this is what the world should be. This is what writing is. This is somebody yeah, yeah. who's a bit like me, a kind of hopelessly romantic figure because his wife comes back to see him, his, his brother-in-law turns up, it just gets, and, and and to be honest with you, I'm not that big a fan of plot. Plot escapes mm-hmm. me. I've written plays where people have gone, that's all right, there's no plot. He can't come in through that door because he's just gone out through that door. And what I like about this book is, in a sense, it's more of a prose poem yes, than true. a book Absolutely. that relies on plot. Although, amazingly, I'm always amazed. This, I've, I've, I read it when I was a student for the first time and it, it blew me away then and it's one of those great things you come back to it I suppose the third time I've read it it's it's even better mm. and one of the things you notice there are little details that you like the fact that he put he was wearing Hugh's jacket so that the piece of paper that incriminates him I don't think we would care about spoilers in this no, no, no. Uh, he, he dies at the end of the book everybody um, he's shot yes. but uh, just in case you're reading it for plot we've, we've sc- scuffed that <laughs> sorry Matt sorry Matt but you think actually that's quite that's quite plotty the mm. fact that he's actually thought through the, the the details because you read it for this incredible swirling. I didn't think anybody could write anything as good as Ulysses ever, and it was mm. I was just one of those kind of Jewish obsessives as a student. And I read Malcolm Lowry, and it, I thought this is even better in lots of ways. This is even better. A little later on, I want to talk about Lowry's intentions for the book, and um, <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about the letter that he wrote to his publisher. Uh, but Ian. One of the things about Under the Volcano, I've read Under the Volcano three times. Every reading is a preparation for the next reading. Yes. Yes. Which is what Lowry intended. Mm-hmm. But certainly the first reading can be quite challenging, I think. And I was looking, of course, I remembered 
that when you were on Desert Island Discs, yeah. you chose a track from Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart yes, and the Magic Band. And it struck me that there are parallels uh, between Under the Volcano and Trout Mask Replica. Mm. For instance, <laughs> but they, they the are desert. unique. You heard it there here first. There is no other you album. You heard it here first, no, folks. There is no other album like Trout Mask Replica. There is no other book like Under the Volcano. Similarly, the first listen to Trout Mask Replica, any normal human being will go, whoa, what's going on? What's going on? But then the more you listen to it, it kind of grows fins and it becomes this Mm -hmm. amazing, complex piece of music. But the third way in which they are similar to one another is the awful psychic trauma visited upon all those involved in making (laughs) <laughs> the Trout Mask Replica yeah, yeah. and Under the Volcano. That that Malcolm Lowry effectively destroys himself mm. through the writing of the book. Beefheart famously locks up the members of the Magic Band for six months in a house, making them play the songs over and over and over again. <laughs> you know, like, but it's Lowry's, Lowry's friends yeah. and Lowry's wives and mm. like, these awful vortex of of booze and art together, mm. fueling one another. You know, and um, we have a little clip here now of Malcolm Lowry's self-penned obituary, followed by one of his friends, Hugh Sykes Davis, one of his contemporaries at Cambridge, reminiscing about Malk, as they called him. Malcolm Lowry, late of the Barry, his prose was flowery and often glary. He lived nightly and drank daily and died playing the ukulele. <laughs> he told me he was doomed. I believed him. But the suffering he had to go through in order to produce the volcano, that's the thing that simply as a human being makes one wonder whether the game's worth the candle. <laughs> I'd rather have the game and the candle. Well, so far, I managed it. But Malcolm was one of these people doomed, as he said, he had to choose the one or the other. He chose, he was completely consistent, in a certain sense, he knew what he was about. Uh, and he, he chose to live as he did, and he produced a volcano. I chose to live in a different way, and I didn't produce anything much. <laughs> well, that's not true. You produced a lot. Well, yes, yeah. but I, I'm still alive. That's a big difference. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> so, I, I, telling... I think Hugh Sachs Davis is a fantastic poet. Yeah, and, right. He's a great, one of the great British surrealists. But what always, what's interesting about Malcolm Lowry's voice is it's not quite what you expect. I wanted him, I've heard his voice a few times, and I want him to have a bit more of a... It's got to boom more, mm. but also it's got to be a bit more ragged round the edges. It's got to be a little bit like, not a stage drunk, but you've got to be able to hear the the, the voice fading away at the edge. But that, that was him, yeah. I think you're right when you talk about the difficulty of it. When I introduce people to it, I say, look, the first chapter is really hard. Please just, if you don't like the first chapter, just go on to the second chapter. I don't think Malcolm Lowry would mind because the first. I've given, <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about well, that. Yeah, you would. You would mind. <laughs> I've, I've, given it, I've given the book to people. They've gone. I can't get past page eight. The aforementioned Dave Thorpe from Newark. When I messed up with him in 2006, I said, "Go on, have another go, Dave. Have another go." He went. He rang with us. I've had a go. That first chapter. I said, "Look," because the first chapter is is more difficult. After the first chapter, it starts to get into more of a trot. So, read the first chapter like you might do your warm ups before you go running. Or like mm. you might do your press-ups before mm. you do your exercising, your proper exercising, because the first chapter is not easy, to be honest with you. When he submitted the book to publishers, it was, of course, rejected by most publishers mm. because it was, first of all, too difficult on first reading. But also, I've got a little bit here. He, he, I mentioned earlier he submitted the book to Jonathan Cape. Jonathan Cape wrote back saying... It was William Plumer, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Thank you for your letter, Mr Lowry. Our reader has responded to your book and made a few notes. We are willing to take the book on. He spent years trying to get this book published, but we need you to make a few amendments. And as Tom Mashler, the clip we just heard is from a film called Volcano, which was recommended to me by our friend Andrew Mayle, which is wonderful. It's on YouTube. It's a documentary. As Andrew said, it's like an episode of Arena in the last stages of tertiary syphilis. <laughs> it's like a hallucinogenic it is documentary, but it's fabulous. wonderful, right? And the, Cape, the then Cape publisher in 1976 said of this letter... Tom Mashley. Tom Mashley wrote... The, the, the Lowry wrote to Cape, this is one of the greatest letters, probably the greatest letter ever, 
from an author to their publisher, but one of the great letters of the 40 pages century. long, isn't it? 40 pages long. I would just read a, a couple of little bits about Lowry, and Lowry subsequently said when he to friends about this letter, God, that letter sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's all true, but he talks about the book and about the difficulty of the book. He says, uh, I venture to suggest that the book is a good deal thicker, deeper, better, and a great deal more carefully planned and executed than your reader suspects, and that if your reader is not at fault in not spotting some of its deeper meanings, or in dismissing them as pretentious or irrelevant or uninteresting where they erupt onto the surface of the book, that is at least partly because of what may be a virtue and not a fault on my side. Namely, that the top level of the book for all its longer, <laughs> has been, by and large, so compellingly designed that the reader does not want to take time off to stop and plunge beneath the surface. If this is in fact true, of how many books can you say it? And how many books of which you can say also that you were not somewhere on along the line the first time you read it, bored because you wanted to get on? I do not want to make a childish comparison but to go to the obvious classics, <laughs> isn't that what that segue from one to the other? To, to go to the obvious classics, what about the idiot, the possessed? What about the beginning of Moby Dick, to say nothing of Wuthering Heights? E.M. Forster, I think, says somewhere that it is more of a feat to get by with the end. And in the volcano, at least I claim I have done this. But without the beginning, or rather the first chapter, which, as it were, answers it, echoes back to it over the bridge of the intervening chapters, the end, and without it, the book would lose much of its meaning. And one of the things that he says in the reader's report said, this book is quite like a book called The Lost Weekend. Mm. And he said, the thing about The Lost Weekend is that's something telling you you already know about Hellfire. I am telling you something new about Hellfire. <laughs> which is which, a great line. He, he was obsessed with that book in uh, Dark as the Grave, Wherein My Friend is Laid, which is his return to Mexico, a novel, a half-written novel that he uh, where he returns to Mexico. It's a bit like Under the Volcano, <laughs> The Return, but as I, as I think I said this morning, it's, it's a bit straight to DVD, to be honest. It, that doesn't... What, what does he call himself in that? He has a fantastic it, yeah, name. He calls himself... His that surname Sigbjorn is Wil Wilderness. Yeah. Sigbjorn Wilderness. Sigbjorn Wilderness. <laughs> in the in the excellent Michael Schmidt introduction to uh, to the Penguin latest Penguin modern classic, he says, "Larry's critics. Uh, the, the letter is often taken as gospel by Larry's critics. His views are so clearly stated that we are freed from having to read with independent eyes." Mm. This is Larry. It can be regarded as a kind of symphony. He, he remarks, then catches fire, or in another way as a kind of opera, or even a horse opera. It is hot music, a poem, a song, a tragedy, a comedy, a farce, and so forth. So uh, Schmidt says, fortunately, in the teeth of such nonsense, it can be regarded as a novel, unique in its characterizations and in the stylistic objects it sets itself. <laughs> um, which is a funny thing, because actually that the, there's, a, there's a brilliantly funny review of a biography of, of Lowry by Gordon Bowker, by Martin Amis. And Amos says something, he says many, many funny things in the review, including, including calling uh, Larry a world-class liar. But he also says, um, you know, when he's kind of uh, coming back to the work, he says something I think re really good about that under the volcano, he remembered it as chaotically confessional, as a torrent of consciousness. But rereading it, he says, now it feels formal, literary, even Mandarin in its intonations. The word pub is daintily sequestered by inverted commas. It is what Larry could never be. It is lucid and logical. It is well-behaved. <laughs> Quite interesting. That's interesting. It's, it's a really interesting thought. Yeah. I'd never, I, I sort of know what he means. It's when you go back to it, it's always a better, more structured, mm. less kind of... It, I mean, it, it always strikes me that it's, there's more going on in the book. That's why you keep going back to it, I think, because there's the layer upon layer. And he worked really hard at, at burnishing it, didn't he? He worked really hard at trying to bring out the... Because I mean, there's all the, the symbolic schemes and the cabalism. You don't really need to know that to enjoy the novel, I don't think. But it's there if you're interested in it. I, I point my learned colleagues back to Captain Beefheart because <laughs> you think you're hearing chaos, but of course mm. you're not. You're hearing a, a, a minutely arranged version of chaos. 
And in fact, I would have been listening to B-Fat whilst reading this. This is great. So there's a thing. So B-Fat and Lowry at the same time. Uh, my dad thought they were both rubbish. So my, I'd be listening <laughs> to Captain B-Fat. My dad would go, turn that rubbish off. What are you reading? And I, I don't know, mate. It sounds like it's Scottish German, doesn't it? <laughs> but then he'd look at this and go, well, that's, that's, I seem to be saying, everybody I talk about who talks about this book has told me it's rubbish. Maybe that made me want to read it more. You know, yeah. so Dave Thorpe handed it to me saying it was rubbish. My dad told me it was rubbish. But you're right, the more you read it, isn't that the fact with all these books that the the person you are now reading it yeah. is not the person you were then and reading it? So this young man who read it in 1974 thought you it was a young man's book. Absolutely couldn't agree more. At the age of 61, you think, well, it's a 61-year-old's book. If you've got a passage yeah. there, Ian, that is a, a favourite passage you might like to well, do you know, share I, with us. I love the ending. Because yeah. we talked about it, I mean, he's not just thrown down a possibly the best, Possibly the best ending, I think, I of, think so. of any novel. <laughs> is there, are you going to the final line? I think I, yes, yeah. Yeah, I think this is the greatest <laughs> final line There's of, no doubt. of any it's, novel. Absolutely. Wouldn't it be a great Captain Beefheart song? We could imagine him singing it. We should write the song. We should write the song. I'll do it from just a little bit before the end. Nor was this summit a summit exactly. It had no substance, no firm base. It was crumbling to whatever it was, collapsing while he was falling, falling into the volcano. He must have climbed it after all, though now there was this noise of foisting lava in his ears, horribly. It was an eruption. Yes, no, it wasn't the volcano. The world itself was bursting, bursting into black spouts of villagers catapulted into space. What a great sentence. <laughs> With himself falling through it all, through the inconceivable pandemonium of a million tanks, through the blazing of ten million burning bodies falling into a forest falling. Suddenly he screamed and it was as though the scream were being tossed from one tree to another as its echoes returned then as though the trees themselves were crowding nearer, huddled together, closing over him, prying. Somebody threw a dead dog after him down the ravine. Brilliant. Then he goes, La gusta este jadán que es sujo, evite que sus hijos lo destroyan. So it was, it mean, uh, this is your garden. And it's interesting because earlier in the novel he mm. mistranslates it. Yes. Do you like, do you do like, you like this garden? Do you like this garden that is yours? Yes. Make sure, it, it means make sure that your children don't destroy it. Mm. But what he says earlier in the book is the consul stared back at the black words on the sign without moving. You like this garden? Why is it yours? He gets that wrong, so it's mm. not a question. We evict those who destroy. Simple words, simple and terrible words, words which one took to the very bottom of one's being, words which perhaps a final judgment on one were nevertheless unproductive of any emotion whatsoever, unless a kind of colourless cold, a white agony, an agony chill as that iced mescal drunk in the Hotel Canada on the morning of Yvonne's departure. Oh, that's so beautiful. Isn't that great? Drunk got goosebumps, actually. That's yeah, very... That's yeah. so... In a way, that, that's the book in a... He sees something, he notices mm. something. Mm. It makes a, a string of, of synaptic connections fire off in his alcoholic brain. Yeah. It's also what Ian was saying about it being a prose poem. You oh, know, yeah. what holds the book together is imagery, not narrative. Mm. Despite Lowry claiming narrative, you can read my book as a thriller if you want... Well, you can. <laughs> I like yeah, the idea of it being a horse. That word. I like it being that we're saying it was a horse, horse opera. Because <laughs> it's horse, horses and trees and gardens and vegetation and chasms and all that Dantean kind of, you know, the town becomes hell. Originally, he intended it as one of a trilogy. He was, going, he was trying to rewrite mm. Dante's Inferno and this was going to be the Inferno part of it. But he didn't really... I mean, that's the other thing about the book, which is that ending is dark. I mean, it's hard. I mean, knowing anything about, we'll talk. We'll obviously have to talk a bit more about his terrible life. But he, it's a dark vision, mm. but shot through with things of such beauty. I, I was down in Sussex um, a couple of weeks ago. We were visiting. Uh, here's the contrast. We were visiting Charleston near Lewis, the seat of the Bloomsbury set. And while we were there, we detoured to the, a nearby village called Ripe, which is where Lowry died and where he's right. buried <laughs> do you think he chose it for the name and uh, he he's buried in a in a small plot at the corner of the churchyard uh if you follow me on twitter you'll see that i tweeted a photograph of the grave uh, which is very plain to which somebody has physically attached a uh a, a, a ceramic plate that has that that message you just read ian God. printed on it we evict those who destroy. Yeah. 
you know it's and actually it's rather beautiful that somebody's mm. done that but that kind of the the other thing we should say about the relationship between death and lowry and under the volcano the book is set on november the 2nd the day of the dead in mexico yeah. it prefigures and this is one of the reasons it's perceived it was so successful when it was published in 1947 it prefigures the atom bomb in several ways the bit that you just read written prior to the second world war was perceived after the war as being having a relationship to the war we also talked didn't we about the divisive nature you were talking what was the guy who you who you were urging to read it several times oh dave thorpe dave, yeah, so dave, dave thorpe dave thorpe was not alone we have a clip here of <laughs> the writer and no the drinker and occasional writer charles bukowski got a very good uh, important <laughs> distinction did you ever read uh, malcolm lowry's under the volcano yeah i did and i yawned myself to shit <laughs> why why because like any other writer there's no pace there's no quickness in his lines there's no life there's no sunlight when you write your words must go like this mm. bim 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 <laughs> Bim, bim, bim. Bim, bim, bim. Each line must be full of a delicious little juice, flavor. They must be full of power. They must make you like to turn a page. Bim, bim, bim. What these guys do, they say, well, in uh, blah, 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 da, 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 there was a porch chair. The flies were walking around. You see, they're too leisurely. They're setting up the scene for the grand emotion, and when they get to the grand emotion, there isn't any. Mm. This is a different age. It's the atomic age. So you want bim, 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 not da, da, da. See, if only I'd known that. No, so simple. Thanks, Charles. Um, but the point, the point then, is, he then can, goes you on. see what he means, while at the same time I could yeah. disagree with every little mm. bit of he what also he goes on, He also goes on to say rather ungenerously that he was a crap drinker because he choked to death on his own vomit <laughs> and then goes to demonstrate the Bukowski method for hanging your, hanging your, your head over the side of the bed so you don't do that. Oh. He was an amateur. The guy was an amateur. Can I just make a point that? it's a kind of a book of one man's descent into kind of uh, hell and whatever but there's bits that are very funny hugely funny the bits where his brother his younger brother Hugh signs on to his what his captain of the ship is affronted that Hugh calls a tramp steamer and the the how he's treated by his um by his colleagues by his shipmates on the uh, on the boat it's just it had me kind of like laughing out loud it's like it's really really funny writing that felt to me like a hangover as it were from ultramarine that yeah. felt like that came from an early... That was his first novel, and that, that felt like a hammer I mean, from he, I, I never... I didn't like those bits as much. I didn't want him to make me laugh. I, did, I thought, he's making me laugh. Please stop making me laugh, Malcolm what, Lowry. You, what, then, when you read yeah, it? Yeah, because right. I thought, I don't, want to, I don't want to laugh. I want to be... I want to more tragedy. Doesn't it work as a kind of... As a relief between the kind of first bit where he's got the DTs yeah. and stuff? I prefer those bits. What about... Does the bit make you laugh where he's talking to his neighbour and he flies oh. open? And he goes, I think I'm a bird in a tree. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, yeah, and yeah. He, then he falls down. Yeah. That makes me laugh, but then I think I'm, I wish you hadn't made me laugh, Malcolm, because it's it's like when you've got a serious uncle and a daft uncle, and you want the you always want the serious uncle to be the serious uncle, and he tells a joke and it doesn't work, and the daft uncle says something profound. It's that kind of thing. I always want Malcolm Lowry mm. to be my serious uncle. But the, Mr. He, he, Mr. Quincy, this is the neighbour. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Quincy, walnut magnet. He's, he's wandered into the garden because <laughs> he's hidden a, a a bottle of mescal That's somewhere right. in the garden. He can't remember Tequila. where. Tequila. Tequila. And then the next thing, this is brilliant. This brilliant Lowry technique of the next thing, literally the next paragraph. He's got it in his hand mm. and he can't remember how it got there. Yeah. And he's, he's he thinks his neighbour he thinks his neighbour isn't watching him. Mm. So he thinks, I better go and say hello, good morning to the neighbour. The neighbour's totally Mr Quincy stared at him evenly, then began to refill his watering can from a hydrant nearby. That ought to take you back, said the consul, to the dear old soda springs, eh? <laughs> Hee hee! Yes, I've, I've cut liquor right out these days. <laughs> the other resumed his watering, sternly moving on down the fence, and the consul... Not sorry to leave the fruit tree, to which he had noticed clinging the sinister carapace of a seven-year locust, followed him <laughs> step by step. Yes! Another great I'm, I'm on the wagon now, he commented, in case you didn't know. The funeral wagon, I'd say, Fermin, Mr Quincy muttered testily, and so on and so forth. I think you're right, Matt. It's I mean, funny, I, it is funny, but it, it, I, just, I, I enjoyed it. it. made me laugh at the time, but I thought, I wish... 
It's the serious adolescent that I was. Yeah, yeah, no. I wanted it to be serious. The, the restaurant, the, the restaurant towards the end with the, the you know, the spectral chicken mm. of the house and uh, <laughs> yes. Onan's in, in garlic soup on egg. Mm-hmm. That's also humorous, but you can mm. feel the gathering kind of horror of that yeah. scene, which yeah. sort of the humour is, is lightens it, but it's, it, I mean, it, there's not a lot of laughs in the last 80 pages of the book. No. So we've we talked about things that the that this novel is about, right? So it's about World War Two, perhaps, mm. or a sense that civilization is beginning to unwind. It's about Lowry because that's all Lowry wrote about fundamentally. All these books that he didn't finish, all part of one great work, which he called the Bolus, where he would, right. where he would draw and he wrote things and rewrote and we- weaved in and out and recycled and. But it's also, of course, it is a book about booze, and as a book about booze, it's perhaps the greatest book about booze. The, mm. the in terms of capturing the shifting of perspectives. I think the thing about the drinking was it was again at the time when I read it, you thought, "Gosh, this is romantic." The drinking yeah. that he was doing was romantic. At North Staffordshire Polytechnic, we had fifteen pence whiskey nights, and we thought this, and we pretended. To be, we pretended to be Malcolm Lowry, me and Dave Thorpe, and Dave Vanatza, and the girl Karen that I lent the book to. You thought, well, we were being like him, but then you read about the end of his life, yeah. the terrible ending. There was a fantastic bit in a, one of the books about him where it said that he spent several hours trying to get some pieces of bread and cheese into his mouth because he'd lost, yeah. he'd got, he trembled, he couldn't. And you thought, well, that is a terrible ending to the whole thing. So maybe you want to believe in him as somebody who wrote about it but then not actually take on the consequences of it as a reader, I guess. The book is about, it's brilliant, it's it's brilliant among many things, but it's it's about as good a portrait of addictive behaviour, of addiction, of what the drink does. And I'll read just a little bit, because this is the kind of the optimistic calculus of the, of the serious drinker, which, which he gets better than anybody. Stop, look, listen. How drunk or how drunkly sober or undrunk, can you calculate you are now, at any rate? There had been those drinks at Signora Gregorio's, no more than two, certainly, and before? (laughs) Ah, before. Uh, But later in the bus, he'd only had that sip of Hugh's habanero then at the bull-throwing, almost finished it. It was this that made him tight again, but tight in a way he didn't like, in a worse way than in the square, even. The tightness of impending unconsciousness, of seasickness. And it was from this sort of tightness, was it? He tried mm-hmm. to sober up by taking those mescalitos on the sly. Mm. But the mezcal, the consul had realised, had succeeded in a manner somewhat outside his calculations. The strange truth was he had another hangover. There was something, in fact, almost beautiful about the frightful extremity of that condition the council, consul now found himself in. It was a hangover like a great dark ocean swell, finally rolled up against a foundering steamer by countless gales to windward that have long since blown themselves out. And from all this, it was not so much necessary to sober up again as once more to wake. Yes, as to wake, as so much as to... And then he's back into the, the narrative again. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful poem, a recipe, a map. The thing in the book that is impossible, which is why doesn't he just... She's come back to him. Mm. Why doesn't he just go with it? She wanted to come back with him. They could make yes. a go of it. The beautiful sort of vision of the life, which, in fact, the life he did lead, mm. Barry led with Marjorie up in his little uh, squat in Vancouver. Mm. But he can't do it, can he? He can't. He's in love with this sort of vision of his own damnation. He can't let it go. But it, it reminded me of the thing that a lot of people, you know, alcoholics say that mm. you don't, if you, you have to want to give up, you have to want mm-hmm. to stop drinking. And he doesn't really want to stop drinking. He loves the amazing, towards the end, Farolito, the vision of the bar in the early morning and the beauty, you know, the beauty of that first glass of mezcal and then the, that thing about negotiating your way through the day. So there are moments when he falls asleep, moments when he wakes up again. But as you Well, say, that bit there, the, the Farolito in the early morning yeah. was the thing that as a young man reading that, you thought, this is what a jewel of a couple of pages yeah. that is. We have a, one last clip which seems appropriate at this juncture, which is uh, the, the documentary I was talking about earlier, which is called Volcano, an inquiry into the life and death of Malcolm Lowry. You will have heard his voice on the first clip. Mm. There has readings from Under the Volcano by Richard Burton, who himself knew a thing or two <laughs> about and drink. And be- be- reads it beautifully. And we have a clip here of Richard Burton reading an extended passage from... Uh, one of those scenes in Under the Volcano, which, as you will hear, the the resonances of it with the lives of everyone involved mm. are, are, are come through pretty strong. Oozing alcohol from every pore, 
the consul stood at the open door of the Salon Ophelia. How sensible to have had a mescal, how sensible. For it was the right, the sole drink to have under the circumstances. Moreover, he had not only proved to himself he was not afraid of it, he was now fully awake, fully sober again, and well able to cope with anything that might come his way. But for this slight continual twitching and hopping within his field of vision as of innumerable sand fleas, he might have told himself he hadn't had a drink for months. The only thing wrong with him, he was too hot. But look here, hang it all, it is not altogether darkness. You misunderstand me if you think it is altogether darkness, I see. And if you insist on thinking so, how can I tell you why I do it? But if you look at that sunlight there, then perhaps you'll get the answer. See, look. Look at the way it falls through the window. Mm. What beauty can compare to that of a cantina in the early morning? Not even the gates of heaven opening wide to receive me could fill me with such celestial, complicated and hopeless joy as the iron screen that rolls up with a crash. I never saw him without... All mystery, all hope, all disappointment, yes, all disaster is here beyond those swinging doors. And by the way, do you see that old woman from Tarasco's sitting in the corner? How, unless you drink as I do, can you hope to understand the beauty of an old woman from Tarasco who plays dominoes at seven o'clock in the morning? Ah, a woman could not know the perils, the complications, yes, the importance of a drunkard's life. Wow, that is unbelievable. Isn't it? Unbelievable. Can you imagine? The audio book <laughs> that could have been. Oh, I know. I mean, we, that's, a, that's a long clip oh, for us to play here. We don't normally play clips that long, but I really felt that was worth hearing. The extraordinary... Perfectly. Perfect. It is, exactly. It's perfect. The man reading the words that must speak to him <laughs> loud and clear. Well, in the background, we heard the fair, didn't we? Yeah. Just the... The turning wheel. Turning wheel, which the whole book is, isn't it? The whole yeah. book is a wheel that turns around that the spokes of the 12 hours and the whole thing. And it is a bit like you could think you get to the end and you start again because it is the endless thing of the he, drunk, the waking up, the sobering up, the back again, and again down it, the ravine. It's patterned, isn't it? So patterned is that, that, mm. that, that scene where he's looking at the horse at the end and he tells the joke to the guy who's, who's saying, what are you doing looking at my horse? And mm. he says, it's, you know, I hear the world goes round and I'm just waiting for my house to arrive. Yeah. Uh, that, that's cyclical. And that's the, that's the, that joke is the beginning of the, of the, of the end where he start, he, he's too drunk to realise that he's in danger and in trouble and that he, you know. I mean, I, I don't think there are very many novels that are, are as great as this. I can't think... It's hard. I mean, you know, Ulysses, there are very few, I think. The best Tolstoy, I think, he, I think it's, it's right in the, in the very top league. I, I, I agree with you, John. I mean, for me, that I read this book about, for the first time about 12 years ago, and I've read it three times, and I would be hard-pressed to... And it, is, it has become one of my favourite novels, books. I'm hard-pressed to think of a book that so successfully marries, as Ian was saying, not just poetry and fiction and philosophy and religious writing, all those things, yeah. but humour and pain mm, and really. artistry. The, 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 the layers upon layers of symbolism that he puts into the book that you can't apprehend first time. No. You might begin to get second time, that on third time you begin to see that actually what sounds like bravado... Mm-hmm. That idea that my book is a wheel, you could you could pick it up at any point. Actually, he's come to believe it. He's 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 convinced himself of his own brilliance, which is one of the reasons why subsequently he becomes so unhappy and so distraught because he can't find his way back. I guess the thing to say to people is, if you don't want to read the whole book, just open it at random yeah. and read a page, yeah, and you'll get magnificent sentences. You'll get images that'll stay with you forever. You'll get paragraphs, and it might lead you to the next one, but it might not. Just keep going through it. Just find your way through it like he might have staggered through yeah. a street. Find your way through it in that way. You don't have to read it from start to finish, it, I would say. It's a, it's, it's a, that's a lovely way because, as you say, the plot is so not the point. I love that it was Mar- Marquez said it was the book he read more than any other. 
and it's interesting you find you find writers who you wouldn't think of Richard Ford a huge admirer of it and then you mm. think well of course Frank Bascom a weekend in you know mm. taking um, there's a lovely thing that the writer underrated writer Dawn Powell said which she said in Under the Volcano you love the author for the pain of his overwhelming understanding mm. which is I really like that because that the, the the thing about Larry, you feel he understood everything. He couldn't control his life. He couldn't, but he could control his book. And I, there's not, the insight, mm. the, the sense of, I mean, his his the fine grained quality of his psychological understanding of that the the relationships at the heart of the book. You know, the the unfaithfulness, the the pain. I mean, he it's it's. It's as you say. I think it, I can't imagine a time in my life when I'm not going to go back and get more from it. And there are very, very few books you can say that about. You may have heard, listeners, that we have in the backlisted <laughs> tradition, uh, wherever possible, uh, <laughs> we we like to uh, respond to the book. And we have just uncorked uh, a fine bottle of what is what is this, John? Uh, it's a it's a single village mezcal. But mm. now it's kind of me- mezcal got has gone uh, has, has gone hip now, but it, it's was strongly recommended by people who I know who... who I, I brought a far cheaper bottle of mezcal, but, but mine does have a little worm that would be mu- That would be... Larry would be much more likely to go for that. <laughs> so shall we shall we send Malk on his way with... Uh, salut. You, uh, salut, everyone. Salut. Salut. Into the ravine. <laughs> Dog to follow. I don't drink, but that is really nice. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> At least we caught this historic moment on tape. What are you doing after the recording? Oh, who cares? <laughs> My it was, goodness. It was, it's quite something, isn't oh, it? Oh, there's some smoke in that. It's amazing, isn't it? They make it They make it in a, in, still made in the same way they made it 400 years ago. Take back to North Staffordshire Polytechnic in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> Reverie. Mm. Um, we should say there's a very good website if people, ah, yes. if people oh, yeah. want to... To, um, called, I think, is it called the World of Mal- Malcolm? There's an, it's a, there's, it's an incredible a, web. I'm going to give the address out. It's yeah. run by um, two yeah. academics, Chris Ackley, weirdly in the David University Large. of Otago in, yeah. in New Zealand. www. otago, uh, o t a g o. a c. n z, which is a uh, hypertext annotated under the volcano. Uh, and there's also a blog called Gutted Arcades of the Past. Is that the 19th hole? Uh, it's it's by the guy who does the night yeah. hole as and well. It's yeah. early. It's the, it's a kind of a, it's a sort of an encyclopedia of Larry's early life, which is, is sort of uh, lots of lots of interesting stuff about before he gets to Mexico. It's great pictures. Which which it? which scales the both these these websites and the people who've written about the books. You know, at like Larry, scale the heights and plumb the depths of of the book. The layer upon layer upon layer of referencing and and mirroring that goes on in the book and i always say to people like you were saying about when you recommend it to people i always say you know what there's no shame if you're serious about reading it like with ulysses about reading it with a crib oh yes and then read it again with the stabilizers off Mm -hmm. Um, and a lovely idea of just just pick it up just pick it up and do it at random i don't know why there isn't it's odd isn't it why november the 2nd hasn't become larry day well i was just wondering is but but you couldn't do what you do for Bloomsday in this book, um, with this book, could you? <laughs> I mean, if you recreated not, the day, not streets, not, not, not unless you'd book, not unless you'd booked a liver transplant first. Um, oh, it seems a, a shame to to leave this behind, but I guess we all. I would can. like to write an opera about it. I've yes. been writing yeah, some libretti recently, and I thought, what an operatic subject this is. I'm, I'm, I've been talking but, to various composers it, about it, and you've got to be a fan of the book. But if I can find a composer who's a fan of the book, then we'll write an opera about it. And we'll 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 have the premiere at the Ilkley Literature Festival. Brilliant. That's what we'll do. <laughs> you heard it here and first. And the, the shades <laughs> of Graham Collier. Lowry yes. and Collier and Thackeray will and, and Don Van Vliet will gather there. together to celebrate. And, Good. And and the captain himself, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If if I think um, I think it's I think an opera would be an amazing idea because it sure as hell didn't make a good film. We, <laughs> we, 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 we don't go need to go on about that. It's a good point to end. Thanks to Ian McMillan. Thank you to our producer Matt Hall, to Spiritland in Kings Cross, fabulous venue, and to Richard Andrews, uh, our engineer. And thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod, on Facebook, um, Backlisted, and on our page of the Unbound site at Unbound.com. 
backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Bim, 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 everyone. Bim, bim, bim. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.